This edition of the Global Leadership Series held at Customs House in Brisbane, Australia, explores the topic of building trust in a post-truth world. While recent public inquiries have uncovered systematic failings of ethical culture, integrity and governance in a number of sectors, they also provide a platform for change and rebuilding trust. In a global pandemic, this opportunity is heightened. Despite many politicians and individuals questioning public health responses, such as lockdown measures and vaccination, we have seen growing support for expert opinion. UQ Trust experts Professor Matthew Hornsey, Professor Nicole Gillespie and James Mabbott, partner in charge at KPMG Futures, explore how trust in organisations and institutions can be built, restored and preserved. Warm welcome to this latest event in our Global Leadership Series. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Debbie Terry and I have the great privilege of being Vice-Chancellor of the University of Queensland. Can I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we are meeting tonight? We honour their elders and their continuing cultural and spiritual connection to this land as we walk together on the path to reconciliation. I'd like to acknowledge Mr Peter Varghese, AO, Chancellor, members of Senate, my colleagues from across the university and the many members of our alumni community who have joined us here tonight for this discussion. Now, conversations about truth and trust run to the core of everything that we do as a university. The alumni among you will be familiar with the words proudly carved above the main entrance to the Forgan Smith building, great is truth and mighty above all things. Somewhat ironically for such a profound statement about truth, the quote actually comes from a book in an ancient Greek version of the Bible that is considered by many to be fictitious. Still, I think the words make a very powerful statement about the centrality of truth to our role as a strong and influential university. Harvard University is even more succinct. Its coat of arms bears just a single word, veritas, truth. Of course, much debate has ensued on the finer points of how truth relates to facts and to knowledge, and in turn on how these are constructed through our interactions with other people. But when American journalists began likening politics in the era of President Trump to living in a post-truth world, I think we all knew that we were facing more significant challenges. The power of informed debate and evidence to help shape and secure our future was under some threat. As John Keane from the University of Sydney put it, paradoxically, post-truth is among the most talked about, yet least well-defined meme words of our time. In the definitions that he went on to cite, the German word postfactisch or postfactual is in fact, I think, the pithiest, defined as the growing tendency of political and social discussions to be dominated by emotions instead of facts. So if we take seriously the view that we are in some meaningful way living in a post-truth world, then the centuries-old role of universities as bastions of truth and knowledge can no longer be taken for granted. As knowledge loses its power to convince, institutions such as ours will increasingly be challenged. 
through, through the COVID pandemic, we did see increased recognition of the importance of academic expertise as governments around the world sought to rely on scientific evidence and opinion. But even if universities are recognised as having generated the science that will ultimately mean that we overcome the worst effects of the pandemic, we must ensure that the community has full confidence in our commitment to the public good. To do this, we need to improve the way that we articulate our purpose and our core mission. In other words, to retain our social licence to operate, we must be seen to be credible, legitimate and trustworthy in all that we do. Now, of course, it's not just public universities that are seeking to retain and build trust. Australia has seen major inquiries into institutional failures and significant breaches of trust by banks, financial services, aged care, churches and sporting organisations. And findings from these inquiries uncovered systematic failures of governance and flawed cultures, often with truly devastating consequences. Meanwhile, rapid changes in society, such as the rise of advanced technology and artificial intelligence, are placing unprecedented challenges on our trust and our trust in our systems and processes. Clearly, large private sector and public institutions recognise that building and sustaining trust is essential not only to engender confidence and goodwill, but to ensure their future viability and impact. So tonight is an opportunity to explore how these trust-related challenges can be successfully navigated in a post-truth world. I'm going to leave it to the Chancellor to formally introduce our expert panel, but what I do want to say about rebuilding of trust in institutions is that this is an ongoing area of collaboration between UQ and KPMG. In 2019, the UQ Business School partnered with KPMG to establish a new chair in organisational trust. And one of our panellists, Professor Nicole Gillespie, is the inaugural holder of this prestigious chair. The collaboration is highly valued and has produced a number of important reports including on trust in artificial intelligence and a practical guide to organisational trust, both of which I commend to you. Again, thank you to everyone for supporting this global leadership series, uh, and I'm sure we're in for another exciting and stimulating discussion tonight. It's now my pleasure to welcome our Chancellor and moderator for this evening, Peter Varghese, who will introduce our guests and go over the format for the evening. Please join me in welcoming Peter. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, uh, Vice-Chancellor, for so effectively setting the scene and the context for uh, our discussion this uh, evening. And uh, may I add my welcome to all of you and particularly to the very large number of alumni that we have in the audience this evening. You're a very uh, important part of the university community and we're delighted to see so many of you turn up uh, here this evening. Now, normally a chancellor is not allowed anywhere near a panel discussion, let alone to moderate one, but I guess the theme of our topic this evening justifies an exemption uh, on this occasion. 
Trust is, in many ways, the great enabler of our lives, not just our personal lives, uh, but the lives we live as citizens, the way in which government operates, the way in which society maintains a certain stability. And it is both measurable, as I think we'll probably hear in greater detail this evening, but also quite an intangible concept. It sits at the heart of institutions, which in turn occupy a central place in our society uh, and our system of governments. And with trust, institutions thrive, and without trust, they struggle to be effective. Trust requires a certain common ground of expectation and values, and maybe that's one of the reasons why it's currently under pressure. Uh, and it's also part of a social contract, which I think helps to maintain a, an equilibrium in our society. Nostalgia can be quite appealing on occasions, but I think it can also often crowd, crowd out clarity, because there's never been, in my view, a golden age where trust reigned supreme, where truth was always objective, and the social contract always upheld. It does, however, seem the case today that trust in institutions and leaders is at a low ebb and has been declining for some time. Uh, as the UN Secretary General, uh, Antonio Guterres, has warned, our world is suffering from a bad case of trust deficit disorder. Why that is the case, what flows from it, and importantly, what might be done about it are some of the issues our panel will discuss tonight. Uh, and we're very fortunate indeed to have such a distinguished panel uh, who, between them, have amassed a very considerable expertise in building and restoring trust and embedding trust in the cultural DNA of an institution and an organization. So it's my great pleasure to introduce to you the panel this evening, and I'll do so uh, in the order in which they will speak. Uh, firstly, Professor Matthew Hornsey, who's the Professor of Management in the UQ Business School. Matthew's research focuses on the psychology of how feelings of mistrust and threat can lead people to reject messages. He looks to translate these insights into concrete and actionable strategies for overcoming defensiveness. Uh, a particular focus of Matthew's work has been on why people reject scientific consensus, such as the psychology of anti-vaccination beliefs or creationism and superstition. Matthew has published more than 130 papers and was elected a fellow of the Academy of Social Scientists in Australia in 2018. So Matthew, thank you for joining us this evening. Our second panelist uh, will be Professor Nicole Gillespie, who, as Debbie indicated, is the KPMG Chair in Organisational Trust in the UQ Business School. Trained as an organisational psychologist, Nicole's research focuses on trust development and repair in organisational contexts 
and in contexts where trust is challenged. She has written commissioned reports on building and repairing trust for the Institute of Business Ethics, a policy note on restoring trust in the financial sector for the UK Parliament, and has consulted to a wide range of public and private organisations. Professor Gillespie joined the Business School in 2010 after holding a number of senior academic positions in Australia and the United Kingdom and remains an international research fellow at the Centre for Corporate Reputation at Oxford University. So we're delighted, Nicole, that you could join us this evening. Our final speaker to round out the panel will be James Mabbott, who's the partner in charge for KPMG Futures, which is a forward-looking research and experimentation think tank. The focus of KPMG's futures is on signals of change, sources of disruption, and innovation opportunities for the firm and its clients. And a key outcome of this work led by James is to drive profitable business growth with the aim of crafting maximum value for key stakeholders. James has played a key role with industry participants, government and industry associations to co-author the landmark piece of thought leadership into financial services technology startups titled Unlocking the Potential, the FinTech Opportunity for Sydney, and has actively worked to establish Sydney's first industry-led FinTech hub called Stone and Chalk. So great to have you here with us, James. Uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome our first speaker, Professor Matthew Hornsey. Thank you for that introduction, Peter and Debbie. This is uh, the word of the moment. Uh, it's the 2016 word of the year, post-truth. You remember 2016, right? This was the year that Trump came to power and people were grappling uh, with how that could have happened, uh, particularly given Trump's uh, somewhat unorthodox views on matters of science. So these are a couple of tweets from back in the day uh, reinforcing that long discredited notion that vaccines cause autism. This is a tweet from 2012 coming up with a very fringe conspiracy theory about the origins of climate change. Uh, and four years after that tweet, he became the most powerful man on the planet. And so naturally people were anxious. People were thinking, well, you know, what does this mean? Uh, the anxiety was that we'd slipped into an anti-enlightenment era where, where truth didn't matter anymore and we're just left with political ideology and emotion, superstition, gut feeling, et cetera. Now you fast forward to uh, 2020 and COVID arrived, and if there was ever gonna be a time where the world turned to science, that would be it, right? And they did, they absolutely did. So very quickly on the advice of scientists, businesses and borders were shut down around the world. But almost as quickly we saw the origins of certain conspiracy theories around COVID. So COVID was an invention, it was a bioweapon, it was designed by governments to reduce pension costs, or COVID was a myth designed to, um, to bring about martial law, or designed to push mass vaccinations on the public and to insert tracking devices in them. Um, around March, April last year in the UK, things got quite real. 77 mobile phone towers were destroyed on the back of theories that 5G was causing COVID in Australia also. So there was a while there where the second most trending Google search term uh, in Australia was, is 5G safe? I'm not sure that this necessarily resents, represents a post-truth society, but it does suggest that for some people, maybe a minority, but a significant minority of people, 
we'd entered like a post-trust uh, era where uh, messages from, from powerful elites were discredited uh, fairly automatically. Who are these powerful elites? Well, they could be just about anyone but the usual suspects, a government and multinational corporations. So if you're part of a, a media conglomerate or from the finance sector or from the pharmaceutical industry or a major tech company, you've probably been the target of conspiracy theories. Tonight, I don't want to talk about any individual conspiracy theory. I do want to talk about conspiracy theorizing as a worldview because some people have this way of seeing the world. They say this is, this is what happens all the time, that it's very common for groups of elites to band together people with bad intentions, they band together and conduct these elaborate hoaxes on the public and they do it in near perfect secrecy. This is just how the world works. And if you have that lens on the world, you're probably gonna be open-minded to many conspiracies, right? Including ones that seem logically incompatible with each other. So when America assassinated Osama bin Laden, there were two conspiracy theories around that. One was that America was lying, he died many years earlier. And another one was that he was still alive. Technically, you can't believe those two conspiracies at the same time because somebody can't be alive and dead. But when you measure it, there's a positive correlation. So in other words, the more people think that Osama bin Laden had died many years earlier, the more they think he's still alive, right? Which, which sounds ridiculous, but makes perfect sense from a worldview perspective, right? Their antennae are just sort of alive to any unofficial account of reality. Uh, it's not much fun having this type of worldview, uh, as Nicole's going to make clear later. I mean, we, most of us don't live in a post-trust or post-truth world. Conspiracy theorizing is still a minority. There's stigma and ridicule attached to it. Many people feel they're cut off from family and friends. And I do get emails quite often from people expressing grief about the sense that they'd lost a family member or they'd lost an old friendship to the world of conspiracy theorizing. But also, if you just have inaccurate appraisals of reality, eventually you're going to do stupid things. So as an example of that, uh, this is a study that I did some years ago. My colleagues and I went around the world and asked people the extent to which they agreed with these world-famous conspiracies. So to what extent do you think Princess Diana was murdered by MI5? To what extent do you think America sort of knew 9-11 was going to happen and let it happen anyway? So we got all those scores, crunched them together, and we correlated that with anti-vaccination beliefs. I don't know how much you can see from that, but the numbers here are correlations, right? The bigger the number, the stronger the overlap. This blew my mind. So what this is saying is that you can predict with a degree of certainty how anti-vax someone's gonna be just from knowing whether they think Princess Diana was murdered or whether they think 9-11 was an inside job. And that overlap between the anti-vax and conspiracy worlds was particularly strong in the West, this is Australia, it's a big number. It's a big number particularly when you think about the fact that the conspiracies we were measuring had nothing to do with vaccination. That's pre-COVID data, post-COVID, it's very obvious that it's still getting the same story. So in America, conspiracy theorists are less likely to get a COVID vaccine and they're more likely to con contract COVID. So it all matters. There's also nice things about being a conspiracist. They often feel special, unique. The universe is whispering secret knowledge in their ear um, that other people don't have, so that must feel good. Some of them, I think, enjoy the sense of joining dots and, and solving riddles. Um, it's like they're on some kind of giant treasure hunt for the truth. Um, there's community these days in being a conspiracist. So if you're a loner at home scrolling through celebrity gossip, 
you're sort of just a loner scrolling through celebrity gossip. But if you're posting conspiracy theories, people will come out of the woodwork and suddenly you're getting bombarded with likes and hearts and supportive comments. I put virtue down here. I'm doing that out of respect for the fact that that's how conspiracy theorists see themselves. They see themselves on a virtuous journey. Um, and in fact, the language of conspiracy theorists resembles quite a lot the language of social justice activists. So when they're saying to society, you need to wake up, right? We're, we're speaking truth to power, right? They're really using the language of false consciousness. This is an old Marxist theory that there are spheres of power that sedate us. We're sedated and we can't see the world for what it truly is. So the, the movie The Matrix is a metaphor for that. And conspiracy theorists use the iconography of The Matrix all the time in their language. So that's one model of what conspiracy theorists are like. There's another model there, which is slightly different, slightly more selfish orientation. We know they're more narcissistic than the rest of us. They're prone to being Machiavellian in terms of their personalities. Some people say, yeah, okay. They think that powerful elites are doing all these sinister things because maybe that's what they would imagine they would do if they were in power. So two totally different narratives. My colleagues and I were keen to referee between them. So we, we had some data around COVID from eight nations last year. One of them was Australia. And we asked them the extent to which they believe various COVID conspiracies. And what we found was that the more they believed the cons conspiracies, the more they did things that could be construed as selfish, like stockpiling, and the less they did other things that also protect the community. You see this with anxiety levels as well. Conspiracy theorists, conspiracy theorists are actually more anxious about their own health and well-being and less anxious about the health and well-being of, of close others. So it's not huge effects, but, but it does tilt towards that selfish actor model of the conspiracy theorist. What else are they like? We know they think differently. They, they, they trend towards more magical, intuitive thinking, uh, less analytical. But they also feel differently, which is interesting. And they, they feel bad. I mean, they, they have a lot of mistrust of society in general. They feel low in power. They feel low in control. They feel like they're on the margins. We also know it's not a left or right thing. It's prevalent at both fringes of the political persuasion and particularly common um, among supporters of populist parties. And of course, Trump is a poster child for that. My own data show that Trump supporters are, in fact, more anti-vax than other Americans. And that's not because they're more conservative. It is because they're more prone to believing conspiracies. All right, so what can we do about this? Well, one thing you probably already, probably already know is that you can't just convert a conspiracy theorist just by mashing logic and data in their face. It just doesn't work. Um, you can't ever really disprove a conspiracy theory. Um, and they do have a frustrating tendency to replace discredited theories with new ones. You also have to be careful with the denials and the fact-checking sites, which are good, um, but the danger of denying conspiracy theory is that you're just raising its profile in the eyes of the public. So most Australians, the only reason they knew about the 5G theory was because they were reading the articles debunking it. So the standard advice now is that if you're gonna present the information, you need to do it in a way where you, you don't mention the original conspiracy theory, otherwise you're just giving it oxygen. Speaking of oxygen, we know that there's certain provocateurs out there. I mean, I won't name them, but there are people whose job it is to distribute conspiracy theories, and they do it because they've got their own toxic agendas. And, and so social media companies are onto that, and they're finding ways to try and deprive them of oxygen. And I do think that these are regulatory triggers that do need to be pulled on occasion. Um, and then the last thing I want to mention was just this long game strategy. I mean, as leaders, I think it does make sense that we should 
try and reduce the feelings of powerlessness uh, and alienation that provide the fertile ground for conspiracy theories to grow. But also, I think leaders, it's incumbent on all of us to make sure that our institutions are as trustworthy as possible. Because even though conspiracies often sound ridiculous, many of them emerge from a legitimate anxiety. I think it, you know, we do need to call out government if they are game playing or lying or indeed engaging in conspiracies. We do need to be vigilant uh, that profit motives are not corrupting the decision making of the finance sector, big pharma or whatever it is. And we do need to make sure that our tech and AI systems are not encroaching on people's freedoms and dignities. Um, and so on that note, I'll hand the floor over to Nicole Gillespie. He's going to be talking about just that, how to increase trustworthiness of institutions. Okay, thank you, Matt, for a fantastic presentation. It was really interesting. Um, so as Matt said, I'm going to talk a little around how we can build and repair trust in organisations. So over the past decades, we've witnessed, as we can see here, many um, organisational institutional breaches of trust systematic failures of integrity, of competence, of duty of care. We've seen abuse of the vulnerable, including the elderly, children, and those with disability. And banks, we've seen, have taken advantage of people as well, um, selling services that were often not fit for purpose. Now, in each of these cases, the trust placed in these organisations was violated. And what we saw was, in too many cases, um, the problems were ignored, they were covered up, and this enabled these trust violations to become even more widespread and cause more damage. So based on these breaches, combined with poll data indicating low levels of trust in institutions, a narrative has emerged, has emerged that we're in a crisis of trust. Now this narrative suggests that people are no longer willing to place their trust in many key institutions and organisations. However, as the British um, philosopher Onara O'Neill observes, our behaviour does tend to suggest something otherwise. Leaving the conspiracy theorists alone, the large majority of us do continue to be willing to rely on and be willing, um, willingly make ourselves vulnerable to a range of organisations and institutions. We even continue to place our trust in some of the institutions that the polls suggest that we have the least trust in, banks, the government and the media. We continue to entrust banks with our money and use their services, but perhaps we're more discerning now about which bank, which services, and maybe we read the fine print a little more. We're consuming more media than ever, but we're becoming more discerning about the credibility of different media sources. And we've proven to be extraordinarily um, willing to follow the directives of the government here in Australia around COVID, even if we disagree or distrust some of their policies. Now, as these examples show, Trust is nuanced and contextualised. And our own analysis of trust in non-profits, based on data from over 30,000 people across 31 countries and at nine time points, has debunked the myth that there's a crisis of trust in non-profits. And that was conducted with Matt and Cass at the business school. The problem is not necessarily one of stakeholders being unwilling to trust. I'd say that the problem is that some organisations, too many, are proving not to be trustworthy. And this focuses us on the challenge of how do we proactively design organisations to be trustworthy so that we can avoid the terrible damaging repercussions of these violations. We know a lot about what makes an organisation trustworthy. A wealth of um, research has shown that there's three key pillars to trustworthiness. 
People confidently place their trust in organizations and leaders when they perceive them to have ability, humanity, and integrity. So ability is about having the knowledge and competencies required to fulfill the organization's core purpose, to meet its goals and responsibilities, and reliably deliver quality products and services that meet stakeholders' needs. Ability is domain-specific, so we may trust a company or an organization in one way, maybe to provide us with a high-quality phone, but maybe not in other ways, for example, to keep our data private. So humanity is the second pillar, and this is about demonstrating genuine care and concern for stakeholders and having a positive and non-detrimental impact on them. For example, exercising a duty of care when dealing with residents of aged care homes. And integrity is about consistently adhering to commonly accepted moral and ethical principles, such as honesty, fairness, fulfilling promises, uh, walking the talk, and living by our values. So research indicates that if any one of these pillars is missing, then it can undermine trust. And which of these pillars is the hardest to recover from when it's breached? Integrity, okay? We see this as diagnostic of a person, even an organization's fundamental motives and character. So trust is very functional um, and should be based on evidence of trustworthiness. Blind trust never leads to good things. So we've conducted many case studies across a variety of different sectors, examining how organizations can be built um, and how they can repair and sustain trust over time. Now our research shows that the organization's design powerfully influences its ability to reliably produce trustworthy conduct. In particular, we've found that these six elements of the organizational system um, are particularly central. And when we embed um, trustworthiness, so that ability, humanity, and integrity into these six elements, this helps us to earn sustained reputations of trust over time. So when we look at these trustworthy organizations, they have a clear purpose that creates value for society. They have a strategy that balances responsibility to multiple um, stakeholders. So a really common problem that we see is a strategy that focuses myopically on serving the interests of some stakeholders, often delivering profits to shareholders or bonuses to executives. But while doing this, they're undermining um, responsibilities to other stakeholders. So for example, they're not treating employees fairly or perhaps customers fairly. So the banks are a really good case in point here. But corporates have traditionally not been designed to be truly multi-stakeholder in their perspective. Rather, they've typically been designed to prioritize shareholder interests. But the recent shift in corporate governance towards stakeholder centricity recognizes that all organizations um, need to meet their responsibility to all stakeholders. Now, dysfunctional cultural norms are also a common um, cause of trust failures or contributing cause. Trustworthy organizations understand that um, culture is powerful and that it needs to be proactively managed. Trustworthy organizations tend to use a broad range of strategies and particularly HR processes to ensure that those values of trustworthiness are really embedded into the DNA of the organization so that when staff act against them, it feels really uncomfortable for them. They also have cultures that unify people around the purpose and motivate them to go beyond self or subgroup interests in order to achieve that purpose and serve stakeholders well. Now, leaders and managers are critical, of course, in symbolizing and creating and reinforcing that culture. What they direct, authorize, and condone critically influences trustworthy conduct. So this is why trustworthy organizations tend to invest very heavily um, in building the capabilities of their leaders, helping them to role model the right values, build those trusted relationships with their team, 
and have the difficult conversations um, when they need to be had. Governance structures are also important here to provide the appropriate checks and balances, the clear roles and accountability. But one of the challenges is how do we balance trust and control? How do we make sure that we maintain that effective oversight um, and manage those critical risks while also empowering employees and giving them discretion and letting them innovate? And in regards to systems, one of the common causes or contributing causes to trust violations are incentive systems that focus on a narrow set of KPIs. It really motivates people to achieve their targets, but what it fails to do is help them to see the broader purpose of their work and their ethical responsibilities. So trustworthy organisations carefully design balanced remuneration systems and holistic ways of assessing and managing performance. Finally, trustworthiness needs to be embedded in the everyday operations to make sure that those products and services are reliable, that they're safe, that they're fit for purpose, that they meet stakeholders' expectations. And this, of course, needs to include the fair treatment of stakeholders across the whole supply chain. So we're seeing a lot more attention being paid around um, organisations living up and taking responsibility for their environmental, social, um, health and um, broader responsibilities here, what's called ESG reporting. So our research shows that the, these trust failures are both predictable and preventable. The organisational problems that we've studied um, were always widely known by multiple leaders and employees, but they weren't addressed. They were left unresolved. They were left to fester until they became conduct or reputational risks. We saw this with the banks. We saw it play out in the media, in the papers, years before the Royal Commission was called. The same thing with the aged care sector. So you can look to the papers to probably predict what the next Royal Commission will be. With robo-debt, the problems were flagged internally by staff, by recipients of welfare, and by ombudsmen's many years before the program was finally halted. So what this highlights is that one of the most critical elements of trustworthy organisations is that they create cultures of openness where people feel psychologically safe to talk about the problems, to report issues that they're concerned about, um, to talk through those, and importantly, that there are effective mechanisms in place to actually effectively respond to those, to make sure that those problems are not left to fester. They deeply listen to their stakeholders. So in our research, all the companies that we researched had some of the elements of our model in place, but importantly, they had critical gaps. And it was those critical gaps that enabled conflicting signals to be sent to, to staff about what was expected, prioritised and valued. So we need to have an organisational-wide approach um, to ensure that we've got good alignment. To support leaders um, in taking a holistic approach, we're currently piloting a toolkit. We're very excited about this. Um, and the toolkit enables organisations to self-assess their maturity of their organisational practices in driving trustworthiness. And it helps them to identify those gaps and to consider how they might go about um, rectifying those, those. So these are some of the questions that we include in our toolkit. So let's now consider about how organisations can repair trust when things go wrong. Well, we were commissioned by the Institute of Business Ethics to conduct a series of case studies. From a different sectors, they were different nature of trust breaches, but what we found was a very common set of um, processes and principles for repairing trust. In each of these cases, they went about trying to convincingly answer four questions for stakeholders. First, they wanted to understand and gain an accepted account of the organisational causes of the failure. They did this through investigations that were timely, independent and accurate. 
Now, when organisations fail to do this and trust breaches festers, then of course those investigations or royal commissions get forced upon them. And AMP is a really good case in point of the dangers of trying to cover up. This just acts as a second violation and makes the situation worse. Once the problems are known, stakeholders want to see evidence that the organisation has comprehensively reformed itself to address the root causes and prevent future problems. So this takes us back to that model of organisational trustworthiness. We typically find organisations um, make reforms to all or at least most of those different um, components. Now, um, to repair trust, we also found that these organisations um, showed that they'd really learnt their lesson and they made many attempts to um, make amends with their stakeholders. So they publicly acknowledged and apologised for trust failures. They paid penance in the form of fines and compensation to affected stakeholders and they communicated how they'd reformed themselves. So trust repair does require these kind of social rituals, um, these symbolic acts. It helps to resolve some of the negative emotions and it helps to re-establish order in the relationship. So we know that when organisations voluntarily um, take these actions, then it um, helps trust a lot more. And particularly, um, trustworthiness and openness are really important to show that renewed trustworthiness. So this is where often organisations will get independent bodies to come in and do audits, often publicly showing the results of those audits um, in a way to show the, the renewed trustworthiness. Now finally, um, when we're evaluating organisations and whether we should trust in them, we often look to what other people think about them and say about them. And organisations can signal trustworthiness through certifications and memberships, through awards and affiliations and endorsements from trusted people. For example, Siemens appointed Michael Hirschman, the co-founder of Transparency International, to advise them on their internal reforms. So recovery from trust is neither quick nor simple. It typically takes many years. It's a difficult and tumultuous process for everyone involved. It can be very expensive and the reputational damages can linger for many years. But a scandal can also be a catalyst to strengthen the organisation's trustworthiness and hence their reputation and resilience in the future. As I think we can all appreciate, and as we've seen played out in the media, it's always better just to avoid these by proactively designing organisations to be trustworthy. Now looking forward, a key challenge for organisations will be preserving trust during disruption and future crises. And one particular challenge here is around um, building trust around artificial intelligence, a technology that both challenges trust but also offers um, ways that we can enhance trustworthiness as well. So with that, I'd like to hand over to James. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole. Um, I'd like to start with a couple of acknowledgements. Um, the first one, I would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, their elders past and present, and acknowledge any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who might be present with us this evening. I'd also like to start just by highlighting and acknowledging our relationship with um, the UQ Business School and in particular Nicole, who has really shaped and challenged our thinking about trust as an organisation. I, as uh, mentioned in Peter's introduction, lead our KPMG Futures team and um, as he said, we're part think tank, part research and development with a focus on the businesses of the future for our firm and our clients. And our work is anchored around six innovation domains. These domains reflect key trends or areas of focus that we see as critical to the future of business and Australian society more broadly. So perhaps it is unsurprising that one of these domains is trust. There are a couple of reasons for our focus on trust. The first is tied up in our heritage businesses of audit, tax, and the provision of trusted independent advice. Trust goes to the heart 
of our relationships with our clients. The second is trust is critical to innovation and growth. The development of new business models, new products and new services can happen at speed when trust is high, and yet it stalls considerably, as Nicole said, when trust is low or non-existent. And in a world where the pace of change seems to be ever increasing and new technologies abound, trust is the flywheel around which their adoption and uptake will accelerate. And more recently, we've sharpened our focus on trust to look at specific technologies, and in particular, artificial intelligence. Together with UQ and Nicole, we examined Australian attitudes towards trust in AI and made the following key findings. Australians have low trust in AI systems, but generally accept or tolerate AI, with almost half of the public unwilling to share their information or data with an AI system, and two in five unwilling to trust the output of an AI system, its recommendations or decisions. Australians expect AI to be regulated and carefully managed, with the large majority of Australians, in fact, almost all of us at 96%, expecting AI to be regulated, but most either disagree or are ambivalent that current regulations and laws are insufficient to make the use of AI safe. Australians feel comfortable with some, but not all uses of AI at work, with most Australians disagreeing that AI will create more jobs than it will eliminate, and a clear expectation of advance notice, retraining opportunities, and redeployment in the event their jobs are automated. Australians want to know more about AI, but have low awareness and understanding of it and its uses. For example, even though 78% of Australians report using social media, 59% of them are unaware that social media apps use AI. The good news is that most Australians want to know more about AI, and we as Australians have very clear expectations of the principles and practices we expect organisations deploying AI systems to uphold in order to be trusted. Most Australians, more than 70%, would be willing to use AI systems if assurance mechanisms were in place, and some of this echoes what Nicole said about trustworthy organisations such as independent AI ethics reviews, AI ethics certifications, national standards for transparency, and AI codes of conduct. So why does this matter? Well, there's five reasons I see this as an important issue for our firm, our economy, our communities, and national prosperity more broadly. The first of these is the ubiquitous nature of the technology that we're talking about here. It's the smart speakers in our homes, our traffic navigation and wayfinding applications, social media, ride-sharing and email filters all rely upon AI. And increasingly this technology is being used in our workplaces to support intelligent automation and advanced data analytics from the back office to the front office. Across our supply chains and right through to the customer and employee experience, AI has an increasingly important role to play. AI applications related to health are also becoming more common, whether it is the application we use to diagnose a cough, or the smartwatch on our wrist tracking biometric data that in turn could be used to inform diagnoses. AI has the potential to be everywhere. The second reason is that AI is also a cornerstone technology of the fourth, of the fourth industrial revolution, probably another name for the post-truth world. Described by Klaus Schwab as a fusion of technologies that is blurring the lines between physical, digital and biological spheres a fusion that promises new solution to 21st century challenges, 
relating to areas such as healthcare, climate change, agricultural sustainability and productivity, and opportunities to revolutionise the workplace and urban environments. This fusion speaks to the more sophisticated solutions such as precision medicine, autonomous vehicles, digital twins and augmented humans. A fusion that will be much harder to realise, slower to achieve and economically expensive if we don't trust in the technology. The third reason trust in AI matters is the economic potential, the money left on the table if we don't get this right. The CSIRO estimated in 2019 that AI and AI-related technologies could contribute a $315 billion boost to the Australian economy by 2028. The economic stakes are real, and with the pandemic having accelerated digitisation across our economy, the potential economic benefit could be much higher. The fourth reason is the very real risks and concerns about the use of AI. The real and potential loss of agency, impacts to privacy, potential for harm through discrimination and bias, and the expert predictions related to potential job loss and the economic and social prosperity we value. And it is vulnerable people who are most likely to be at risk and least able to access remedy. The ethical implications demand we take a considered and thoughtful approach to the development, application and management of AI. Already we have seen companies purporting to detect a person's truthfulness or stress levels from the use of AI to analyse video images and detect micro skin fluctuations or changes in voice as key indicators. Claims that have been shown to be as reliable as the science of phrenology, although having listened to Matt, I now know I can't use facts to debunk that claim. Uh, I'll have to use something else. So good practice and good product in an ethical sense matters. And finally, it is also the fact that trust matters. How we as businesses and organisations build and maintain trust is critical to our reputations. That trust is built on the relationships between us and our customers. And the challenge AI presents is that increasingly the hero of our organisations will be a mix of people and technology. Therefore, to build trust in AI, we need to make sure that as organisations and governments, we live up to Australians' expectations of trustworthy AI to be ethical, that there are strong and robust regulatory frameworks in place, and finally, we need to help educate Australians about AI and strengthen our AI literacy as a nation. Well, I think you'll all agree that that was um, an extraordinarily um, rich set of presentations, um, and they are uh, so many issues that it raises. Um, questions have been proffered. I'm sure there are many others that we would like to discuss. We've got about 15 minutes, and I will uh, get to some of the questions that were pre-submitted, but I wonder if I could um, take the prerogative of moderator to ask a, a question of my own to start off with to whichever member of the panel wants to take it up, um, and it is this. Some people point to Australia's handling of COVID, a very topical subject, as um, a welcome return to evidence-based policy making. But I wonder if it, if it is as straightforward as that. How does trust work at the intersection of politics and expertise? And is there a risk here of a Faustian type of bargain where the trust invested in experts is 
used for political gain and how should experts deal with that? So who'd like to have a crack at that? <laughs> you mentioned COVID. I mean, obviously that is, that is a concern that governments will cherry pick the science that it chooses to listen to. And so it's gonna, you know, if it's consistent with a political agenda, then it's gonna push the scientists to the front. And then if it's not politically expedient, they'll ignore the science. Um, and that's something that I know scientists and experts are wrestling with all the time. But you, you mentioned COVID. It's, it's really interesting. I'm, very, I'm so curious to know how history is going to reflect on these last 18 months, and it's too early to tell. But I'd like to think that history will look back on this, and, and they will see it as a triumph of evidence-based decision-making. Because when I look at the world, that's what I'm seeing. And I know that many of us are binge-watching the US and binge-watching Trump and, to a lesser degree, Brazil, and you could reach a totally different conclusion. But when I look around, I think that what we've seen is is quite a lot of compliance and quite a lot of sacrifice on behalf of not just governments, but also ordinary citizens um, taking the science on faith. That's my position on that. Okay. Thanks, Matthew. Any, Nicole? Yeah, I'd add to that uh, the importance of experts and scientists to maintain their independence um, and their impartiality, even in the face of pressure. Uh, I think that that's important for them to maintain their own sense of professionalism, to maintain their own trust in them. We get to a situation where experts, you know, potentially changing what they're saying or not, you know, really offering their, their true and full professional judgment, then, you know, we're going backwards rather than forwards. I also think, you know, calling out inappropriate conduct, calling out if they're ever asked to do that so that, and that's the way I think that calling out behaviour really helps the person who's instigating it to um, you know, reflect on their own behaviour too. Now of course with power differentials that's very difficult, um, however I think it's something which we need to have the courage to do. Yeah, I mean it was interesting talking to our colleagues in the US when you know we're all initially going to lockdown and looking at how we'd respond to COVID and you know one of the most common conversations you'd have with a colleague in the US was they'd say, how do you get your government to listen to your scientists? And it was a, so I think, you know, a very different experience here versus elsewhere from that perspective in terms of the messages that were being sent both from a scientific community perspective and a government perspective. I think the other, the other piece um, that I think is quite interesting from an Australian perspective is I, I certainly get the sense that we seem to be more interested in respecting science from that perspective. It, it's, it's, it's been less of a political weapon, I guess. And I, I think, you know, I, I wonder, Matt, that one of the outcomes of this is whether or not, ironically, you do weaponize science in some sense because it has been so successful in driving a particular message into um, the broader community that therefore, you know, in some ways you're maybe opening people's eyes to the potential for manipulation in that sense. Let me turn to some questions that have been submitted um, and I'll start with one that comes from a slightly unexpected angle really and it's this, is trust a soft social virtue that has been destroyed by alternative facts in inverted commas or can it be used as an economic driver and made hard-edged? is a very different way of thinking about trusts. I've, I've always thought of trust as having a hard edge. You know, as James and Nicole were making clear, economies thrive in conditions of trust, that you can't have a strong economy, you can't have trade, you can't have uptake of innovation and development without a bedrock of trust. 
And so I don't really have like a soft lens view of it. Uh, I think the reason that people like James and Nicole are in such high demand is because it is very consequential in a, in a very concrete and immediate way. Yeah, I'd um, just reinforce that. I mean, you know, trust is talked about as being the basis of all social exchange. And I think we see, you know, many corporates want to be trusted because they know it can give them competitive advantage over their competitors. Um, the European Commission, when they were talking about trustworthy AI, they were talking about how do we make Europe have a competitive advantage because we will be the most trusted in our use of AI. Um, so I think people intuitively understand that and there's been a lot of science associating um, you know, trust in organisations um, with hard indicators of performance, sales, revenue, etc. Clearly what I spoke about was the fact that I think there is a hard edge to this. We know um, from the work we do with our clients that where there is no trust or, or low trust in those relationships, you don't work with those clients for very long and where you can establish those long trusted relationships you do and um, I, I think it is very hard edged actually. Let me turn to the intersection of trust and technology and James you spoke about um, AI and some of the issues that um, arise there but let's look at it from a slightly different perspective, and that is, how is data analysis being used to identify root cause issues regarding trust efficiency? So how can technology help us get a better grasp of what's driving trends in relation to trust? Well, I almost feel like Nicole's well-placed to answer some of this with some of the work we've been doing around trust diagnostics, but, but what I, I mean, Data absolutely has a role to play. I mean, one of the things that sits behind the AI and trust report we did is a, um, a path model showing the correlation between different factors and their ability to predict the degree to which we may have trust in AI or what factors might influence that trust. And, you know, it was quite clear that regulatory frameworks have a very strong influence and there's a number of other, fa other factors at play as well. But I think yeah, absolutely you can get data that shows that. I just think depending on the context though, the data is going to vary. I think that's part of the challenge and that's one of the things we've been trying to work through is can you build a picture of an organisation's trustworthiness, know the different factors that impact it and therefore actually design some interventions that can help increase that. I think what's really interesting there is how we can use um, the power of AI and advanced technology with, with data to do things that just are impossible to do without that. So for example, you know, AI is behind detecting credit card fraud, it's, it's part of detecting modern slavery in supply chains, it's part of, um, you know, as James mentioned, you know, can even help us to understand and predict the spread of COVID. So it's got all these social good purposes, which um, even I think in terms of the Royal Commission, even helping to make sure that people get their compensation back, like AI is even being used there as something that would take too long to do if it was humans doing it. So I think that there's a whole lot of ways in which AI um, and data can be used um, to promote a lot of social good and enhance trustworthiness in society. But then of course there's all the ways, deep fakes, etc., where we can see the exact opposite as well. And are there, are there cultural differences in the way in which um, different communities will approach 
the link between trust and technology? Is, is there any research in that area? <laughs> yeah, well, we just did a five-country survey, but all Western countries, we actually find that they're very right. similar in terms of how people trust in artificial intelligence, quite similar patterns overall, a few nuances. Um, but next year, we're actually looking to take that to a much larger study, so, you know, um, where we can actually see. I, I suspect that we'll find very different trends when we go into some of the Asia, um, right. you know, some of the broader non-Western countries, I suspect. Now, the next question is, um, is the, the way in which transparency and trust come together or perhaps don't come together. So the question is, often in the wake of trust failures, there are calls for greater transparency, which is seen as being fundamental to accountability. Is transparency always a good thing, or are there occasions when it can put organisations or individuals within them at risk? So look, I think it's a double-edged sword. Uh, so one of the things we've talked about a lot is when there's some sort of major failure or something's gone wrong, you need to be transparent in order to be able to move beyond that, to put the line in the sand and to be trusted again. The problem, the rub, is that by making it all transparent, by going through all these royal commissions, we see just how bad it was, right? So typically, our trust plummets even more. That transparency can, can harm trust in the short term, but it enables a foundation to then repair trust over time. So that's one angle, I think, on the transparency. I do think, though, that particularly when we look at public accountability and transparency, like there is a line where sometimes when maybe full transparency is not always ideal. Um, where, you know, imagine if, if doctors had to be fully transparent when they have to make difficult decisions about do we give the 90-year-old an operation or do we use those resources for something else over here they're only going to live... So if we actually made all these decisions that are getting made all the time by professionals actually transparent, we might not agree with what's going on and that might cause trust to break down. And this is one of the challenges, I think, with AI, is it's forcing us to make salient and explicit some of these very difficult ethical, moral trade-offs so we can codify it, and that's been some of the, one of the things talked about with autonomous vehicles. Do you kill the passenger? Do you kill the driver in an event of an accident? How do you make those decisions? And we have to code that now. Well, I think the other thing in an organisational context, you know, one of the challenges we stare into is organisations are characterised by their brands, and those brands have a promise attached to them. And when things go wrong, you've got to be vulnerable. I find this really interesting because one of the things we often talk about when discussing trust is it's, it's a very human thing, right? To trust someone or to seek trust means you've got to be vulnerable in a sense. You've got to re reveal yourself um, and, and maybe you're not perfect, right? And, and so I think in an organisational context, that's quite challenging, particularly when you have a brand in the marketplace that says this is what we stand for and who we are and you've done something that doesn't fit with that, you've, you've got to be prepared to be vulnerable. And I think, to your point, Nicole, as part of doing that, obviously that has a trust deficit impact, but it, where you are vulnerable and you act on it, I think you actually create the opportunity to build a stronger trust outcome at the other end. And certainly, you know, through the work we do with clients, it's often in those most difficult moments um, where you have those really deep and revealing conversations and go through the trenches together that you actually come out of the back of that with a much stronger relationship as a result. But it's that vulnerability piece that's so hard to get past. The trans it's such an interesting dynamic. And I feel like trust goes both ways. So, so the public sits there 
in judgment of whether they can trust government and organisations, etc. But organisations and government also have trust issues. If they're transparent, if they release detail around things, will the public, will other political parties, will the media deal with that in a mature and proportional mm. way? And I don't think that they can be confident of that because we live in a politicised world where parties are incentivised to misrepresent and dramatise mistakes. And we live in a world where media are incentivised to do the same thing. So I think it's a two-way street. Well, that uh, brings us to the end of our panel discussion. And um, can I firstly um, thank um, our three panellists um, and the audience for uh, your attendance here this evening. Uh, one of the objectives we have with this global leadership series is to take the work and the research that the university does from the ivory tower down to the marketplace of ideas. And um, uh, I'm very pleased we've had an opportunity to do that with such an important topic. And I think it also gives um, our alumni and others a, uh, a window into some of what our humanities um, uh, researchers are doing, because uh, often university research um, and the contribution of humanities is not adequately understood or uh, appreciated. Um, to me, uh, there have been you know, so many takeouts from uh, the discussion. Um, I think it's important not to dismiss conspiracy theorists, but to try and understand them, even if depressingly Matthew tells us that um, uh, facts will not necessarily change opinions. We do need to understand the phenomenon we're dealing with and over time hope that we can engage in a discussion which is more uh, based on facts and to avoid an echo chamber in any circumstances. Um, I think um, the discussion about how you design trustworthy organisations is uh, a very important one uh, and clearly something that we should all be thinking about um, in all the institutions that we work in. Um, the emphasis on um, uh, ability and humanity and integrity as uh, key attributes that engender trust, I think, is something for uh, all leaders to um, keep a very close um, focus on. Um, and as, um, as James said, you know, trust is the flywheel, and we all know what happens when the flywheel stops or spins out of control. Um, so the stakes here are really very large. So um, thank you all very much. Put your hands together and acknowledge the uh, presentation.